The following sermon is by Manny Alaniz, pastor at St. Stephen's Chapel in Northwest San Antonio, Texas. For more information, for prayer, or to support us financially, please visit our website at ststephenschapel.org or call us at 210-241-5969. You know, throughout history and throughout American history, there have been many famous criminal trials that have been deemed like the trial of the century. You can, if you've lived a long time, like some of us have, there's probably been a few of those trials of the centuries. Perhaps the most recent and one of the most famous trials in American history involved a former professional football player by the name of O.J. Simpson. You may remember that trial. He was acquitted. He was found not guilty of, of the murder of his ex-wife and a friend of hers. That trial lasted nine months. The verdict to this day has been widely criticized and perceived as a uh, uh, as being racially biased, and, and it was a mishandling of evidence, and the use of a, the celebrity status of the person who was on trial. This trial, that trial, that particular trial was not the only trial that's been under heavy scrutiny in American history. Uh, that's, that's not been the only trial that's been under controversy for the verdict. I'll just go over a couple of more, three more. Some of you may recall George Zimmer, the, the, the George Zimmer trial in 2013. You remember George Zimmer was the neighborhood volunteer, watch volunteer. And he was acquitted. He was found not guilty of murdering uh, Trayvon Martin, who was an unarmed uh, black teenager. That stirred up a lot of controversies. Another trial you may remember is a Casey Anthony trial in 2011. That was uh, where Tracy Anthony was acquitted, was found not guilty of the charge related to the death of her two-year-old daughter. Another trial that goes back a little farther, uh, the, what they call the Central Park Five back in 1989. That, that involved five young black and Latino men who were wrongfully convicted of the rape and assault of a white female jogger, a white female jogger in Central Park in New York City. Those five men spent 13 years in prison after that conviction. And in, but in 2002, that conviction was was vacated because the real perpetrator of that crime came forward and confessed to it. And he was able to give all the details of how it all happened. Now, regardless of how you think or what you think about these verdicts or any other verdicts that you may have heard about that involve what you would think or what the public would think in general would think is a miscarriage of justice, one thing that they all have in common, 
All these trials reveal the human element. The human element. What is the human element? Well, the human element is us. We are the human elements. The judge is human. The juries are human. So they are prone to make mistakes. That's the human element. They are prone to call a, a person that's really guilty of a crime, and, and they're prone to pronounce that person not guilty. That is the human element. It has happened many times in the courtroom setting, in the human courtroom setting. I guess worse, the statistical data shows that consistently over the decades, as long as they've been keeping stats, that fewer than half of all the serious crimes that are committed Fewer than half are actually reported to the police. So fewer than half. So you got a hundred percent. You got a hundred murders or assaults or whatever you want. Serious crime. Well, fewer than half, fifty percent, are actually reported to the police. And then few, if any, arrests are actually made. As a matter of fact, in reality. Of those, you got 100%, well, fewer than half are actually reported. That's 50%, right? Of those 50%, of those 50%, only 11% are, are, are involved in the arrest of someone. Someone, the perpetrator, somebody who is an alleged perpetrator actually gets arrested. Now, think about that. 100%, let's say 100 people actually committed a violent crime. And only 50 of them are actually reported to the police. And of those 50 that are reported, 11% of these serious crimes actually involve a, an arrest of that person, of, of a person. So we're down to 11%. And of those 11%, only 2% are convicted. Did you stay with me on that? That's like nothing. That's like the majority of the violent crimes that are committed, not just in the U.S. Well, these are U.S. stats. The overwhelming majority are actually convicted of a crime, of that crime. That's a human element. And that is only taking into account the, the, the serious crimes, that what we would call the high crimes. But what about the misdemeanors. Well, what about the petty thefts that occur all the time? What about the times when people take something from their job or from school or even from a neighbor without their knowledge? And what about the times when we commit theft by not, you know, being quite truthful about our income tax or anything else? That would be considered a crime, a theft. What does this all mean? Well, it means that our civilization as a race of people, the human race, has a problem. But some people would say, ah, but Manny, Pastor Manny, not, no one's perfect. Uh, I may have taken a little sense from work, but everybody did it. 
No one's perfect. You're right. No one is perfect. Ah, but see, there's a day coming. There is a day coming where everyone will stand in this celestial, heavenly courtroom and have to give an account of their life. Everyone. Holy Scripture tells us that there will be a time when each person must stand before the Lord God Almighty righteous in the right. They must stand before God in the right. Righteous. That means sinless. That means sinless. Can you do that? Well, not before Christ, right? No one can do that. Scripture says everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. Oh, come on. That's not true. That couldn't be right. Well, okay, you know, that's what Scripture says. And I just gave you some raw statistics, some, some statistics that bear how, how broken we are out. If we cannot stand righteous before God, we will be condemned by God, who will be the judge. See, there's no human element there. That's a divine element. He is the divine element. He will render a perfectly divine verdict on each of us. No matter how, like, we think, okay, I did my best. I've talked to people, loved ones, family members that have said, you know, if I, when I go up there, I'm, you know, God knows I did everything I could. I did my best. I did my best. But what he gave me, that's what, they, that, what does that mean? Like what God gave me, like you're blaming him now? I did my best from what he gave me. He didn't give me a lot of money. He didn't give me a lot of skills. He put me in the barrio, the barrio de los Mexicanos where all the crime is. I mean, what can I do? I did the best I could. I think that's probably good enough before God. No. No, where God dwells, His abode is perfect. The kingdom of God is perfect. And if we cannot stand before Him perfectly righteous, in other words, in right standing before God, we will be condemned by God. And that verdict will be final. That verdict will be absolute. When you stand perfectly righteous before God, that means that there are no liabilities or claims against you. There's none. No one can say, man, he sinned. No one can do that. That's crazy, right? It's impossible for humans. We must be right with God. We must be sinless. So how? How does this happen? What does this mean to all of humanity? It means all of humanity is not looking good. Everyone will be condemned to the fires of hell. We are all condemned in our natural state of being, in our natural state of being. Therefore, we will also, all of us, in our natural state of being, will be, will have to face the wrath of God. The wrath of God. God, God's wrath is on sin. 
is on sinners. That is the object of God's wrath. It is said, it is spoken about in the Old and New Testament alike. The wrath of God, the object of the wrath of God is our sinners. Well, who are these sinners? Do you know any? Yeah, you probably know a bunch. There's some of us in this room. We compose this church. Okay. But so the wrath, we are the objects of the wrath of God. As sinners, we are the object of the wrath of God. That's, I mean, we need to be clear about that. Now, whether we want to believe that or not, that's, that's, that's individual. That's individual. But when we go to the Word of God and when we look at the Gospel of Christ, it is very, uh, yeah, it's very humbling. It, it is very humbling. It is, it, it can, it's, it's offensive. I know some of you who have shared the gospel with others, and you told them that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with this world, with all of us. They, some people will take offense to that. And yeah, I mean, golly, there's nothing wrong with me. I mean, I'm not perfect. But how can you say that? And see, the answer to that is you're not the one saying that. God is saying that. God's word is saying that. God's word has made it clear. All of us are the objects of God's wrath. That should strike fear in everybody's heart. Right? It should. It should. But here's how wonderful God is. He turns everything upside down. He changes everything. He turns all this upside down. He does not want us to come to him in fear. No. He wants us to come to him in love. Love. He wants us to love him. My friends, when I was growing up, I was terrified of him. And I came to him in terror, but not knowing who he was. And, and there are a lot of people that you and I know that, that feel the, the same way. They say Jesus is my Savior because they're terrified. Uh, they don't even know what it means. What God is telling us in our passage, what God is telling us is that he wants us to come to him in love. Because we love him. And he reveals that to us. He reveals that love to us. God does not want us to focus on fear. He wants our primary focus and our motivation on his love for us. Please, if you walk, when you walk out of this worship service today, I want you to know and I want you to remember that God loves you. But there's a caveat. It's really not a caveat. It is the reality of God's love. We must be aware of our sinfulness. And how, are we, how do we, we become aware of our sinfulness? Well, we become aware of our sinfulness because of the law, the law of God. It convicts us of sin. Now, although God is perfect, in love, he's going to flawlessly, flawlessly convict us of sin. He has to, or he wouldn't be God. 
He's also a loving God who can and will forgive sin. Forgive sin. And how does he do it? How is that possible? Holy Scripture tells us how. Oh, the depth of the love of God by God's loving grace. He gave us His only begotten Son. That's love. He gave us love. Who is Jesus? That's the question we're looking at today in this sermon series. Who is Jesus? This is the, we're looking in our sermon series, we're looking at the foundational doctrines of Christianity. And today we're looking at who is Jesus. Jesus is love. In a word. He's love. Love. Now we know more about him, but I, I, I want you to understand that. Jesus is love. Jesus is the love of God. He gave us his begotten son. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. That's right. He's the Savior of the whole world. And the way to receive is salvation. God's salvation that comes through him is to believe in him. To believe in him. That's what scripture reveals to us. Throughout Scripture, Old the New Testament. The New Testament just makes it abundantly clear. It just comes out and tells you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, for God so loved the world that He gave us, He gave us His only Son, that whoever, doesn't matter who, it's open-ended, open to everybody, the world. Whoever believes in Him, that would be Jesus, should not what? Perish. But have eternal life. The most famous verse in, in the New Testament, John 3.16. This evening, again, as we look at the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is love. He is the personification of divine Trinitarian love who came down from heaven and became a human. God came down from heaven and became a human. We as true Christians, we, 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 we hear it. We get it. But it's still beyond us. We just, like, how, how, does, how does God do that? Well, it's a God thing. It's the depth of God's love. The depth of God's love is manifested upon the object of his wrath in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To gain a better understanding, we look at we have to look at the person of Christ, and then we look at the work of Christ, and we'll go through it quick. We start with the person of Christ. Who is the person of Christ? Well, unlike the existence of God, that is debated all the time by many people, countless people, that God actually exists, which is nonsense. But the question of who Jesus is is not as hotly debated because Jesus did exist. He actually was a human being that walked this earth. And that is, that is seen in, in outside biblical texts, outside the biblical texts, in other writings. Josephus or other Jewish writings. And even 
Gentile writings of the day, Roman writings, that this, there was a man named Jesus that actually existed. The Jews, the Jews, they found the arrest warrant for Jesus. The, the Jewish arrest warrant for Jesus, and they accused Jesus of being a sorcerer. So they, 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 they pronounced or they got an arrest warrant for Jesus and accused him of being a sorcerer. Why would they accuse Jesus of being a sorcerer? Because of all the miracles. How, could, how else could they explain it? Of all the mighty works and the signs that Jesus did, that certainly would point to him being at least sent by God. That's what Nicodemus said to him. Hey, no one, no one could do these things unless they were sent by God. You know what Jesus does when Nicodemus says that? Wouldn't you think that's pretty good? Golly, if you could say that, you could meet Jesus and go, hey, no one, Jesus, no one could be doing all the things you're doing if they weren't sent by God. That would be, you would think, God, you might pat yourself on the back, man. You did, that's a great observation. Do you know what Jesus did with Nicodemus when he tells him that? He rebukes Nicodemus. He rebukes him. Why? Because he, God, was standing right before him and he didn't recognize him. So you know what he tells him? Because he didn't recognize him as God, he says, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are what? Born from above. You can't even see it. You, much less enter it. You, you can't enter it if you don't even see it. He rebukes Nicodemus because he didn't recognize him as God. The disciples did. So you can't say that no one ever recognized him as God. They did. His followers, his disciples, his apostles. My Lord and my God. He, he received worship from them. The depth of God's love is manifested upon the object of his wrath in that while we were still sinners, God died. Jesus Christ died for us. The fact that Jesus lived, the person of Jesus is, is not, not hotly debated, not even debated. That he really walked this earth some 2,000 years ago. But see, there's more to Jesus. Our passage clearly states that Jesus pre-existed humanity. Jesus pre-existed the creation of the world. He existed before the creation of the world. He was the Lagos, the Word. It also gives reference, our, little, our passage gives reference to the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What God, what God revealed to us in three persons? The Godhead, the Trinity, one God. Revealed to us in three distinct persons. Now, what does that mean? Now, it means that Jesus, it means that the Son of God the second person of the Holy Trinity is not God the Father. Nor is God the Father the Son. Nor is the Son the Holy Spirit, and it keeps going. They're distinct, but one. Hey, that's too much. How do we explain something like that? People have talked about, well, maybe ice. You know, like, how about water? Water freezes to ice, or it goes into, like, fumes or something, vapor. 
No, no, they all, all that stuff falls short of anything. You know what the closest thing that falls, that, that, that we can compare <coughs> to the Holy Trinity, the Godhead? The closest thing is a human. Is a human. As, it, as a human is revealed in Scripture. A human is a, what? Flesh, body. A human has a soul that will live forever. And a human has a spirit. A spirit. The spirit is what used to commune with God. Communes with the Holy Spirit. Like three, it's like we're a trinity in this body. At the time of the fall, you, our, our communication, our spirit was severed. Our souls will live for all eternity, even if they're condemned. And our flesh will die. That's about the closest thing we can relate to. Isn't that amazing? How God, well, we were created in God's image. And at the time of the fall, the, it says the flesh was condemned. Well, the flesh, when it talks about the flesh in Scripture, it's talking about our bodies. Go back to dust. Our soul is condemned for all eternity. It doesn't die. And our spirit is severed. God quit communicating. In rebirth, there's a tie. We start this again. It's amazing what God will do and how we commune with God. God, the three persons of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why we know that God is love. God, by understanding, I'm sorry, love. Love, by our understanding, means that there has to be a giver of love and a receiver of love. Like, who, if there's, like if there's nobody else in the planet, you're by yourself, there's nobody else on the planet, who are you going to love? Well, the, the, the Holy Trinity, that says that God is love. Well, who's he loving? He's loving the other persons in the Holy Trinity. Love. God is love. Jesus is the personification of Trinitarian love. Jesus is love. In all the manifestations that we can think of, of God, God is love. Jesus is love. Jesus demonstrates his love by coming down from heaven, by becoming human. He's obedient, but he does it because of love. Who does he love? He loves the Father. He's obedient to the Father, not because he has to be. Well, you know, Jesus doesn't say, well, the only way these poor humans are going to make it, it, or only if I go down there and save them. And so he reluctantly comes. No, he willingly comes and lays down his life because of love. Love for the Father. And love for us. Love. Jesus is love. In verse 14 of our, the passage that was read, it says, He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
verse 14 talks about the incarnation of God. God becoming a human. The second person of the Holy Trinity came down from heaven and takes on human form. Born of a virgin, he is the God-man. Truly the God-man. Jesus was one man with two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In John 10, verses 30 to 33, Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, at first glance, you could go, I and the Father are one. He, he's not saying he's God. No, no. But look at the passage and look at Scripture. Look at the New Testament. The Jews that heard him saying that knew exactly what he was saying. Knew exactly what he was saying. They heard him say that, and they went over there, and they picked up stones because they were going to stone him to death for blasphemy. He says, me, I, and the Father are one. Okay, let me go get some stones. Everybody, come on, let's go. We're going to kill him. We're claiming to be God. He, he did it. He, he said, he says, I, and the Father are one. He, he said that so they could understand that he was deity, God. But there's more, and there's many passages that where he claims to be God. He says in a passage he uses God's name to identify himself. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. That is one of the names in, in, in Exodus that God tells Moses, I am. I am before 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 Abraham. I am. They knew that he was using the name of God for himself. Pick up some stones. Let's pick up some stones. We're going to have to kill him. Because they knew what he meant. That's why they were doing that. Sometimes we read just a part of that. We don't finish the rest of it to put it into context. So that brings us to the, the work of God. The work of Jesus. Why? Why is Jesus' identity is so important? Why does it matter whether Jesus is God or not? But Jesus had to be both God and man to be able to do what he did. As God, Jesus could satisfy the what? The wrath of God. Jesus had to be divine, to satisfy the wrath of God. And as a man, Jesus had the capacity to die. He had to be a human so he could die. And it was a human who committed this crime against God. God, the Father, is perfect and holy in His wisdom. He chose to give us his, be, his only begotten Son as a substitutionary atonement. Our substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came. See, when we, still, we were talking about this celestial courtroom, 
setting, that we're there. We, if we're there standing before God, we're going to be condemned. You might as well get ready. Pack your bags. You're going to hell unless you are righteous before God. And so when we get up there, we're going to be found guilty and condemned. And Jesus is our, he's going to get there and says, Manny, move. I will take your punishment. The punishment, though, I will take the wrath of God for you in your stead. That is wonderful. I mean, that's like, God, I don't like, what do you do? What do you do with that love? What do you do with the, that love like that? What do you do? Oh, I don't know if I can believe that. That's just too much. Yeah, it is beyond our comprehension. It, the word of God is saying that we're all going to be condemned. And God himself says, I'm going to take the punishment for you. I will step in. I will be your substitutionary atonement. And you will be, you will stand righteous before God. That's how you get into the kingdom. Sinless. What do you do with that love? Well, you're here. You're here. In awe of it. And you don't ever, you don't ever, you don't ever get over the awe. Of God's love, the, the love of Christ. You, you don't do it. You just just thank Him. You keep thanking Him. We in our, we in and of ourselves cannot merit our way. We cannot work our way into heaven. We have. The, there are some religions, and there there are some of us, some of our loved ones think that you know I I did some bad stuff. But I have suffered a lot. Guys, I have suffered a whole lot. Now, I did some bad stuff. But I have really suffered. Now, that's going to take care of the bad things I did. No, it's not. Why doesn't it? Well, okay. Let's see. What if you committed a crime, a, a, a violent crime against somebody? And they say, okay, man, you're going to the penitentiary. You're going to pay your debt to society, and we're going to charge you $50,000 as restitution for the family who suffered so much. So you go to prison for years and years, and you pay restitution to the family, and you get to the end of your term, and you're released. Does that mean you didn't commit the crime? No, you still committed the crime. You're tainted with this criminal act. It's like sin. You're tainted with sin. We're tainted with sin. Jesus is our substitutionary atonement. He makes restitution. For us, he takes on the wrath of God because he loves us. He loves us. Regardless of whatever we do, even today, so some of you, you're, you're sure that your sins have been forgiven. And you take comfort in knowing that. But you're still like, golly, I still did that. I still did that. You still have this guilt because you're tainted. You're still tainted. But that's going to go away. Jesus says that when you stand in the celestial courtroom, you're going to stand before God in the right. It's as though you have never sinned. 
says, oh, God looks at Manny Alanese and says, Manny, you've never sinned. Yeah, you're glory bound. It's as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he's going to take sin away from us and the taint of sin away from us, the guilt of sin away from us. This is some incredible stuff. There are many passages in our script in scripture that talk about that the love of God comes only through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells us in John 14, 6, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, the kingdom of God, God the Father, except through him. No one. That's not us talking. That's, that's the Son of God talking. That We're not making that up. We just know that that's what we're being told by God himself. Acts 4, 12 says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It, it, even the, the, the most famous verse that I just quoted a little while ago, just a, a couple minutes ago, it says in John 3, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave us his only Son, that whomever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But see, it goes on. It doesn't stop there. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But it goes on. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Condemned already. This is some incredible stuff. Now, how do we know this is all true? Well, it was recorded. It really happened. But the confirmation of all this, everything that Jesus said, all the promises he made, our salvation, all that is confirmed by the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. 500 plus people saw him in his resurrected body and it changed the entire world. It changed the course of history. That is our guarantee. The disciples and the apostles were willing now to lay down their life to share the gospel message because they knew that there was life beyond the curtain of death. Last week, uh, just last week, uh, we reflected, many people reflected on the 9-11 terrorist attack back in 2001. Total of 2,977 people lost their lives on September 11, 2001. 2,977 people got up that morning to go about their usual day's business and activities, not expecting anything unusual to happen to them. But something did. Something they never thought of would happen, happened. Now that's us. That's us living right now, here, today, listening right now. We don't expect something unusual to happen. But what if you were called today to stand in this, stand righteous in this celestial courtroom setting? Could you do it? Could you stand righteous before God? 
Well, if you're in Christ, you can. You can do that. You're already righteous. You could stand before God in the right because God, because the, the love of Christ dwells in you. We stand before God as though we have never sinned ever in our lives. Now, we're, if we're not in Christ, we're standing on our own merits on the things that we've done and we'll be condemned even before our good things because they're not good enough. See, we're condemned for our bad things and we're condemned for our good things because they're not good enough. But God wants us to focus on love. He loves us so much. He says, Manny, look, here's a gift of grace in the person of Christ. All you have to do is receive it. Receive it. It makes, again, it, it, it does, it goes beyond a comprehension. I'm not going to say it doesn't make sense. It does. It's, and, and as you live your walk with, in, with Christ, it, it starts making even more sense of how this all works. But the depth of God's love is manifested upon the object of his wrath in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Let us pray. To- You've been listening to Manny Alanese, pastor at St. Stephen's Chapel. For more information about our church, visit our website at stephenschapel.org or call us at 210-241-5969. Please join us prayerfully and financially as we seek to glorify God by preaching His Word and spreading the gospel of grace in boldness and selflessness.